You are listening to The Real Faith Stories Podcast. Interviews with people who chose to boldly follow their faith. I'm your host, Brian Robinson. Now, let's meet our guest and hear their story. Jamie, welcome to Real Faith Stories. Very excited to hear your story today. Yeah, thank you for having me. You had an incredibly harrowing experience where you were arrested and put on trial in an Islamic country facing a 10-year prison sentence, and then God miraculously intervened during the trial. Before we go there, please share about yourself and what led up to this situation. Yeah, I was uh, a police officer, so graduated from university, went into the police department, uh, which was my dream since I was in eighth grade. And so at 23, graduated, went to the police academy, came out, went to work in the police department. And in my time in the police department, I was a believer, met Jesus through the witness of a nurse when I was in the hospital for surgery in high school. And so I was a believer. Because of that experience with that nurse, I realized that God was pursuing me. I didn't understand that. I didn't realize. I thought God was pretty disappointed in pretty much everybody. And so I had no idea that he would pursue me even when I wasn't asking. So I was very motivated by that. And it changed the way I thought about being a police officer, this particular nurse. And one of the first really sincere prayers I ever prayed was, as I went into the police department, was, Lord, can you make me a police officer like that nurse is a nurse? And what I meant by that was she was in the vocation of being a nurse, but who she was in her true identity was a healer. Mm. And I, even at 17, I was so mean to her and bitter. She doesn't know to this day that I'm a believer. I mean, as far as she was concerned, I was, you know, a waste of five days. She sat with me for five days because wow. I kept cussing her out and making her leave. And she would come back the next day like she'd never met me before with all this joy. <laughs> and uh, so she really impacted me, not, by, not, not only by what she said, but by who she was. And I realized this person is actually trying to, you know, she's working on the recovery part of the surgery, but she is reaching inside of my soul and trying to bring me into healing. And so I just thought, wow, if I could be a police officer that didn't get my identity from the vocation, but brought my Christ identity to everyone I interacted with, that would be a different level of being involved in law enforcement. Yeah. So I had a model, and I'm very big on this, I had a model in my mind of what that would look like because I had seen a model of it, her. Mm -hmm. So going into the police department, my question, I'm my first midnight shift out of the academy, I said, Lord, make me a police officer like she was a nurse. Teach me how to bring my true self into this vocation and let me be a blessing to everyone I come in contact with and think of new ways to do this job that haven't been thought of before. And so the challenge with that was two things. One, in the department I was in, you're not allowed to ever talk about religion, period, never. And they will terminate you immediately. There's not even a review board on it. If you get complained on for talking about religion, you're, you're terminated. So that was one challenge. And the other was there was nowhere to go to find out how to do it in new ways. Like there wasn't any book to read on, well, how do you show your faith in the police department when you're not allowed to do right. it? And then, and then also a little later in my career, I realized like, wow, we get into these investigations or these situations 
and our training doesn't go here. Mm -hmm. So we have to create new ways of thinking about the situation that we're in that we have not been trained in. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? Is God an expert in law enforcement? Is God just religious? Like, can God work in all vocations? That kind of thing. I didn't know. There was no one to ask. And so I just carried a notebook with me and I just started asking God. I'd be in these scenarios and I would say, God, um, really, I, I learned this from the book of Acts. It's just asking God, what do you want me to know that I don't know? And then as a result of that, what do you want me to do? Wow. When, when I knew what I knew and I knew what to do, I did it. But when in the situations where I didn't know what to do, or we were at a dead end, or we were in a situation that I just had never seen before, then I started asking God. And what, to my surprise, is that God speaks, or I should say God still speaks. Mm. Uh, and so the two things I learned very early on was God still speaks and his word still cuts. Like Those are things we don't believe anymore, I don't think. So I just started practicing that and, you know, in small situations. And then as with the Lord, you, the more you pursue him, the further he'll take you. Yeah. And you keep stepping out with him. He keeps increasing the level, raising the level and increasing your awareness of his presence. And, and the other thing God does is he walks you through your fear. He walks you through your fear out to the other side of it. So you don't become braver. You become less fearful. You become fearless. Mm-hmm. And so it's not this macho bravado. We had lots of that. That doesn't really solve anything, actually. I mean, a lot of big talk and big proclamation. But it's just this very calm, very blue flame kind of, like, I'm not afraid of that anymore. I'm not going to be afraid of it again. I love that. Which then the Lord takes you to the next one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because we're afraid of everything. All the time. I mean, most of our decisions are self-protection and self-promotion. That's how most humans, and I'm talking about Christians as well, make their decisions based on fear, based on risk assessment and counting the costs and these out-of-context ways of thinking of these things instead of like, Lord, what do you want me to know and what do you want me to do Yeah. here? And it may blow up a paradigm that I've already got. So I just started practicing that mm-hmm. in the department over five years. And I could sit here and talk to you for hours on what I experienced in those five years of doing that. Give me, if you would, Jamie, a highlight or two from that experience. Would love to hear it. Yeah. One of them, I was officer of the year because we went to work a kidnapping. So this is in the 80s, Mm -hmm. right? So there's no computers and all that stuff. It's just the old school police work. But so I was in uniforms in my second year, I think, and got dispatched to a kidnapping, an abduction from a school bus stop of a kid, you know, third grade. And then you get to the school and the, the school's like, this kid didn't show up to school. We call the parents. The parents don't know. They dropped him off at the bus stop. You know, and the very first thing you check is there's some kind of domestic situation going on in the family. Nothing, just a, a weird. And in the 80s, this was, this was unusual. Unfortunately, it's not that unusual today. But in the 80s, it was very unusual just for someone to vanish like that. And we were two hours behind the event and interviewing third graders at a bus stop. Is, yeah. You don't get tons of good information out of it. And so we didn't really have a suspect, just nothing. We had nothing to work from. So I went to talk with the father you know, we sealed the perimeter and the helicopter was up and all that. But I went to talk to the father and he was obviously hysterical. And I had small sons at the time. And I said to him, 
we're going to find your kid. We're going to find your kid. Well, you're not allowed to do that. You don't say things like that to a parent in a situation, especially this far. I mean, this guy could be so far gone, the suspect. So I walked away and my partner said, why did you say that? My partner was senior to me and he's like, you do not say things like that to people. And I said, yeah, I don't know why I said that. I know, I know not to say that. I know better than that. But I just wanted to comfort the guy. Anyway, so my partner and I split up. So I'm in my cruiser and I, I drive like three blocks from the scene and I just pull over and I just said, God, what do you want me to know about this situation that I don't know? And then what do you want me to do? And I have, and my question to God was, can you locate a kid? Do you do that stuff? <laughs> like, is that, because I've never been any church that ever talked about this kind of thing, but can you like guide me? in things like this and when and if you will what are the circumstances and how would i know and mm -hmm. this sort of thing and so i'm just asking him and i kept saying you're the god of mercy you're the god of mercy your eyes on the sparrow and like where is this kid and this car comes driving down the street from behind me just going the speed limit i'm on a residential street just comes past me it's a guy driving a car and no one in the car with the guy and he drives past me and I just feel really sick to my stomach. Mm. This is a feeling I've come to know very well. And I just feel like there's something that's really, really, really wrong. And so I, I pull out and I cut the guy off and I jump out of my cruiser and I tell him, get out of your car and open the trunk right now. Open that trunk right now. Wow. And the guy just does what I say. And the kid is in the trunk of the car. Oh, my goodness. And, and he's okay. And so, uh, I mean, I was astounded. The driver was astounded. The kid was astounded. And I arrest the guy and I call the detectives. Detectives come to the scene that are working the case. And they pull me aside and they say, how did you know to stop that car? What's your probable cause for stopping that car? What are you going to say in court for why <laughs> you pulled that car over? And I said, well, you know, I was praying about this. And they're like, nope, that's not going to fly. That's not going to work in a court. And so I realized right then, not only is God teaching me, like, there's a way to do this, but there's also a way to be able to articulate probable cause, and you need to think about that. Anyway, the guy pled because he was so terrified that I knew. He, he was freaked out by the whole scenario. So that was a big, like, wow, mm -hmm. what in the world? And, of course, it, it wasn't like that all the time, but that was, that was a big one for me was... You need to abide in Christ in this. You need to be abiding. I've got to ask you this, Jamie. When you mm -hmm. had that sickening feeling in your gut, that was an indication something was way off here. What was the motivation inside of you? Did you even consider this could be completely bizarro and I'm totally missing something here? Where'd they, that motivation come from to just cut this guy off and instantly move? It was a feeling like whatever you're in proximity to is really, really bad. Mm. It's like wrong. Mm. I, I know this feeling so well now. And it was interesting because when I was with a training officer, he used to say to me all the time, you know, trust your gut, trust your gut. That's how cops talk about it. And they know this feeling. They know this sense, but they don't know what it is and they don't know how to practice it and master it. They don't discipline it. And really good investigators can do it. They can just tell you. And so, but that was what it for me is like, this situation that I'm in is like upside down wrong. Yeah. And it's not the trees. It's not the cars. It's the humans in it, the situation. 
And so he was the only other person in proximity to me. And it was in the scenario. I'm in the scenario. I'm, I'm asking this thing of God. Yeah. Here's, here's who's next to me. And so why would I not act? Right. Why would I just sit there and feel bad? And so I didn't really think about it. I just moved on it. You know, the definitions for obedience in the Old Testament is to hear and respond to listen and respond. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God. You know, the Shema is to hear and respond. It's not just, here's a list of rules, obey them. That's crazy. It's to hear and respond. And I asked the question and God made something known to me and I responded to it. So I've missed it at times. I have missed it. I have not moved on it, but that's how you learn. I think so much of us get stuck in the listening mode or we're so used to receiving and kind of getting fed that when it comes time to actually exercise your muscles of faith, as it were, right. we wind up just sitting there. Exactly. And I think God's communicating all the time. Mm. And as, that's a good way to say it. We've, we've never practiced it. We don't discipline it. We don't ask the question, how does God speak to me? Mm. We're, we're too busy like looking at other people. How does God speak to that person? Well, I should be like that person. As soon as you start thinking like that, you've missed it. Because now you're just comparing yourself. Yeah. God doesn't at, want you to compare yourself to somebody else. It's not how he does it. He wants you to be who he made you to be, to understand how he speaks to you uniquely. It's all part of worship and abiding. It's like, I know how he speaks to me. I would never tell another person how he speaks to them. Mm-hmm. I, w- I don't know how he speaks to them. All I know is he speaks, right? Later, you know, I started training other cops and how to do this. And I would say to them, I can't tell you what to know, but I can tell you how to know. The goal is not what to know. The goal is how to know things. What's your epistemology? And I think Jesus, one of the things Jesus is teaching us that we don't pay attention to, because we just want formulas for things. We just want to know the formula to get something to work. And Jesus isn't telling us what to do. He's telling us how to know what to do. That's so good. That's the secret. Yeah. How to know what to do. How do you know what to say to that Samaritan woman? How do you know to talk to her? Not what do you say, not like, well, how do you do evangelism? What are the three points you got to cover? It's like, why did you even go to her? And when you went to her, how did you know how to talk to her? And Jesus keeps saying it. I say what the Father is saying. I see what the Father is doing. That's the most amazing thing is that capacity. Otherwise, you're just imitating prophets like a Muslim would do or Something. That speaks to my experience, as probably you've experienced, where somebody gets up to say something, their intention was to say A, but when you heard it, you heard something totally different because the Spirit of God mm-hmm. caused it to awaken your mind to hear what you needed to hear. And, and right. so, where does a formula play in there? That's right. And because we can't lock it into a formula and control it, it scares us. Mm-hmm. Because then I can't write down, you know, in my notebook, okay, these are the three steps to get God to talk, and this is what he's going to say. Like, forget it. This is a mystery. It's a very beautiful mystery, and it's a relationship, and every relationship, if respected, is a mystery. Any formulaic relationship is false, but relationship based on mystery and truth-telling is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So, tell me how you move from being a police officer, and then that process of going to the Islamic country, and then what happened there? Mm -hmm. The walk with Christ is a progression and an ascension. And every human has a biology of transcendence. All humans, their biology is built to look up and out. 
and grow and move. All, all of creation is this way. It's never just to remain stagnant and still mm-hmm. and stationary. It's to move and grow and change and be being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll know the excellent way. So it, it just would make sense that as I was practicing this as a police officer, that it would move into other higher levels of knowing and understanding and vocation. Mm-hmm. I, I always tell people, if you want to get promoted, learn how to hear from God and whatever it is you're doing, because he's a creator and he made us to be creators with him. So if you're not creating, something's not right. Mm. Not transforming. So I just was for five years in the PD, just practicing and experimenting and trying new things and new interview strategies when I was interviewing suspects and how do you get people to tell the truth when they don't want to tell that all that sort of thing. And then in my fifth year, I had made investigator. Then I got a phone call from a magistrate who I worked cases with, and he wanted me to meet with him. So I go meet with him. And he introduces me to this guy that wants to meet me. And the guy that wants to meet me is um, an operations guy from an agency in the U.S. government. And we're meeting in this restaurant at night. And it's just very like, we need to meet right now, tonight. So I go meet with him. And the guy has all my um, casework for five years in a folder. And he, he says, how do you do what you're doing? Can you articulate to me how you're doing what you're doing? Because we know you didn't learn this in the police academy. (laughs) How are you working these cases? How are you closing these cases? And then he would just open up the folder and say, like this one, for example. And he he pulled one out. How did you do this? Like, tell me from zero to closure, what did you do? And I said, I don't think you're going to like my strategy. He said, I don't care. We like your results. And uh, I said, well, you know. It involves my capacity to tap into hearing God speak and doing what God says in these different cases. And he, the guy said, yeah, I don't like that. He said, however, it works. And it was that verse, you know, by their fruit, they know you. We can spend all day long explaining to the world why we believe what we believe and all that. It's just do it. Like, mm-hmm. do it mm-hmm. and let the world see. Like that nurse never explained anything to me. She just did it. She just was it. Her being informed her doing, and it impacted me. And so he said, what you're doing works. And then he said, could you do this, what you're doing, in a Muslim context overseas? This is 1988, Mm -hmm. 89, that time frame. So the Muslim world had come on the scene in the 79, really broke out as like something to be reckoned with in the world. And 10 years into it, foreign government agencies are like, we better think about how to do this. And he said, can you do this in a Muslim context? I, I said to him, are Muslims different than other humans? <laughs> like what I'm doing works with humans. My challenge to him was like, see, just because you think Muslims are different than you, that's already your mistake. Already you, you, your strategy is going to fail and it is failing. I said, they're humans. And if they're humans, yes. So he said, I want to paint you a scenario that we're working right now. And it failed. Our solution has failed and re- resulted in the loss of an agent mm. and, tell us what you would do. So he tells me the scenario and I just do what I always do while he's telling it to me. I'm just like, I have the mind of Christ. Mm -hmm. I have the spirit of the living God inside of me. And so I'm listening inside of the Trinity to the situation. It's not just me. And I'm using all my experience in the PD, everything I've learned, everything God has taught me, listening to the new scenario. 
And he tells it to me, and I said, yeah, here, this is, I'll tell you what I would do. First of all, I would do this completely different than what you're doing. I would do it this way, blah, blah. And I explained to him what I would do, and he goes, he goes you're hired. We're offering you a job right now. <laughs> he offered a salary package, the whole thing right there on the spot. That's how desperate the world is for new ways of thinking about things instead of just conforming to patterns of the world over and over again. And so that was the beginning of me thinking overseas. And I came home and talked with my wife about it. And and uh, one of the first things I said to the guy is, I told him, yeah, I'll absolutely be involved in this. I know this is not just you. I think this is God inviting me into this next level of who I am and my identity on a bigger scale mm. with higher risk. That seems exactly what the Lord would do. But I can tell you right now, I'm not going to sign a contract to work with you guys because that contract alone will destroy anything that would work. This cannot be attached to foreign policy. This has to be, but I will take the challenge. So he said to me, you're going to, I mean, this was later as we met, I went through their whole process and everything I had to, for them to give me the clearance to take on the project, yeah. but I wouldn't agree to con a contractual relationship with them. Cause I said, I can't serve two masters in this. And he couldn't believe it. He said, you're going to do what we're asking, but you're not going to take any compensation from us at all. And I said, that's exactly right. That's one of the things that's wrong with your strategy. And uh, he's like, all right, okay. He goes, I don't think it's smart, but okay. So then we put in the process our strategy it took three years to build the strategy i had to go to grad school i had to study under a certain professor to make it all work and then i got the government of the target country to hire me i got the bad guys to hire me and put me in the place where we wanted to be incredible and i learned that strategy from moses moses was trained by the enemy to build a nation and he was financed by the enemy he didn't have to raise funding from christian groups you know he he was raised by pharaoh and trained by pharaoh and financed by pharaoh to leave and i'm like why aren't we doing that strategy <laughs> like what happened to that strategy so that's what we tried i'm, I'm saying we because i built a team mm -hmm. and went to grad school i needed a degree in a certain area and then i went to the government of that country after i graduated and said i want to do a research project I want to do it here in this place, and that place is exactly where we want it to be. And they, the Muslims put me there. Hmm. <laughs> so, Amazing. So that whenever anyone was challenging me, like, why are you here? It's like, because you put me here. That's why. Right on. And yep. And so that's how we got there. So what happened next? So we got to, into this location. It was an island, and it was an island where uh, one Islamic country was trying to destabilize another because of the Sunni-Shia power play in the world between Iran and Saudi Arabia. And this was a place where they decided to like work it out, mm -hmm. fight it out. And the U.S., obviously, no one wanted that place destabilized. So part of our goal was to end that extremism on that island. So our little team, six of us, moved there. And we um, were hired by the government to teach in the university there. They had a government university on this island. With, and they had a radical student organization inside that university. And that's how a lot of extreme movements start with young people. So I've said if, if we could get inside that university, we could get inside that group. We could bring the kingdom and take take away the hostility and the fear that was that produces extremist movements. So that was my, our whole strategy. Yeah. Replace it with truth. And so we went in there. And so our understanding of Islam back then, this was 1990 when we went in there. So 
we trained as best we could in all the current, how do you talk to Muslims as a follower of Jesus? And pretty much the strategy was apologetics and polemics in those days. You discredit the Quran, you discredit Prophet Muhammad, and then you present the Bible as the authority and and Christianity is the right way. So that was the strategy of the time. And I didn't know another way to think about it. I mean, I didn't have any paradigm other than that one. And so got into the university and pretty much we're going to tell you why the Quran is not true. We called it attack and extract. That was the strategy. Attack whatever the other religion is and then extract them from that religion into yours, convert them into yours. And it just made perfect sense. There was no other model for it anywhere that I knew of. And that's how you trained in this kind of stuff. And so we started working it. And it was funny because I taught grad school and I was teaching discourse analysis and phonetics and all that stuff. And I loved the students. Oh my gosh, I loved them. Even the radical guys, and they were mean. They did not want us there. But it was just like being a cop at a higher level. Is <laughs> all it was. It wasn't any different. But I treated it different. It was really interesting. I lost my capacity just to listen to God and let him tell me what to do. Because now I had a kind of a academic framework in my mind of apologetics and polemics. And as I look back on it, is I left my heart and went into my head. Wow. And I don't hear God in my intellect. I hear him in my heart. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I started to become adversarial with them, even though I loved them. And it started to produce conflict. And it was frustrating to me and my wife and other people that I worked with. It was like, why is there conflict now? We didn't have this when I was a cop and all that. And one day I had a student challenge me on thesis writing and could the Quran be a sole source for a thesis? And I said, no, it can't. It's not that authoritative, which is the right answer, but it was the wrong way to say it. So once I said the Quran's not authoritative, that was it. I broke the law. I broke the law of the country when I said that. Mm-hmm. And it was a sloppy thing to say, and I shouldn't have said it that way. But that was it. The extremist guys were in every class I taught, writing down everything I said, waiting. Every day they were interrupting me in the class and trying to get me to insult Islam because they knew that I was hired by the Islamic government. You were totally targeted now. Oh, yeah. Every day. It was intense. It was very intense. And you're on an island, you know, and you can't get off it. And they threatened us. And one of the guys on our team, they broke into his house and stabbed him multiple times. Oh. And the other guy on our team, his wife basically just slowly had a nervous breakdown and her health just fell apart and they had to leave. And so it was just me and my wife in the end. But there's constant pressure and people walking on our roof at night and there's nowhere to go. Mm. There's nowhere to hide, Man. no gated community to go to. So anyway, you know, I made that statement and then I was just notified by the government. You're now charged with insulting Islam and the Quran. It's a 10-year prison sentence. You're not allowed to defend yourself in an Islamic court because you're not a Muslim. And so here's the trial date. We'll see you then. They didn't have to arrest me. There was nowhere to go. What did you think, Jamie, when you heard that? What went through your heart and mind? Well, first of all, I was mad at myself (laughs) because I was sloppy. Hmm. I was lazy in what I said. So I was mad at myself. Second was we knew it just wasn't going well. We knew it. We knew something wasn't right, but we couldn't figure out what was wrong because we always had this sense of like doom, Mm. which we hadn't ever had before. It was like something, it it was like the feeling I had in my stomach. I had it all the time. 
but I thought it was just Islam or something like that. I didn't know it was us. It, we were the problem. Wow. I didn't, I couldn't figure that part out. Had to be the bad guys. And so I, that was really troubled by that. But the only part about the prison thing, I mean, I felt like I could handle going to prison for 10 years. What I was worried about is my wife, who happens to be Jewish, alone with our three young sons on that island for 10 years, you know, as a Jewish woman. That's the part I felt like, wow, if I'm not there to protect them, I don't know what's going to I don't even want to think about what's going to happen to them. So that was the scary part to me, mm-hmm. was them left unprotected. Sounds like there wasn't even a formal trial, was there? Yeah, there was. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I, they were just gave me the date and they said, show up and this is the day of the trial oh, yeah. and be there on this day. And then we just had to wait, which is the hard part because you just lay in bed at night thinking, and, and th- this is the way the enemy works is then you start threat forecasting. Yeah. Right. And then you start putting yourself in hypothetical, horrible situations that God's not asking you to think about, but the enemy's inviting you to think about it. You know, and Isaiah says, he is kept in perfect peace whose mind and imagination is fixed on me because he trusts in me. Mm -hmm. But if you fix that imagination on self-protection and self-promotion, it produces anxiety because then it's all on me to figure out Mm -hmm. how to do it. Yeah. So it's hard to to live in the present in that scenario because you're predicting what's going to happen once you get No doubt. Yeah. So... Did you actually get put in jail, Jamie? What happened? No. So I had to go to the trial. And at the trial, I just knew when I left to go to the trial, you know, I basically said goodbye to my family because I'm going to, I'm going to the trial. I'm going to the hearing. Oh and they're going to be find me guilty. And I'm going to prison. Like, there's no other way out of it. There's no defense. I'm not allowed to speak. No Muslim is going to put their life on the line for me because all I was doing was attacking Islam pretty much every day. So why would a Muslim come stand for me right. when I'm basically telling them that their book and their prophet is a lie? Yeah. Right? See, all these things are coming to my mind. Like, why am I saying that? Why is that? The, does Jesus go around deconstructing other people's religions by insulting them? It's like, that isn't what he was doing. I've never done that in my career. Why am I doing it now with Muslims? Why am I attacking what they hold sacred to prove them wrong? It's insulting. So anyway, that was all in my mind going into the hearing. So I go into the hearing, and in the hearing is the head of the university. It's all Islamic, you know, the three Islamic clerics that are overseeing the Sharia law, and then the dean that charged me. So they're in the room, and then there was a vacant seat, and that vacant seat was supposed to be the head of the Islamic Association of the whole country. He definitely wanted us out of there. He's the most powerful Muslim in the country. He wasn't there for some reason. I figured it's because they're going to put an American in prison. That's why. And he didn't want to be associated with that. So I had called the embassy and said, look, you know, I'm pretty sure I'm going to prison for 10 years on this. And, you know, just to let you guys know what's going on. And they said, we don't know you. So good luck. We can't recognize that you're there. So you're on your own. So I'm in, I go into the trial and I'm sitting there. And really, the overwhelming feeling in me was, God, I feel like I made the mistake here. I don't feel like this is the bad guys getting me. I think this is me. I think I didn't ask you, what do you want me to know? What do you want me to do? I think I just took this on my own. I figured I could do it. And I wasn't asking for wisdom. I just came here to convert people Mm -hmm. out of what they believe into what I believe. And I felt bad about that. And so I was mostly sad while I was sitting there. And so they read the charges, and the charges were at, no one lied. 
they said exactly what I, and then they, they could say, and he said this, and he said this, and he said this, and they, they're all exactly what I said. I broke their law. I broke their law. And again, I was mad at myself. I was like, if these people were in our country breaking our law, we'd arrest them too. Sure. It's not, I don't have any special privilege just because I'm a Christian. I can come break your law. I think Christians forget this. It's disrespectful. It's dishonoring. So they weren't drumming up false charges and accusations. It was like, this is what he said. And you can't say this. And I was thinking, Paul, the Apostle Paul, like I would say, I didn't break any of your laws. That's what he would claim. And the magistrate, when the Ephesians wanted to have him killed, the magistrate said, this man is no way, in no way blaspheming our goddess. That's what the magistrate says about Paul. Mm -hmm. He's not here blaspheming our gods. And yet many are believing in Jesus. I'm like, that's not what I'm doing. I'm in here insulting their God, their view of God, whatever. Yeah. And I'm not doing what Jesus did or said or Paul. So, anyway, that was what was going through my mind. I asked the Lord to forgive me. I really did. I, for some reason, I've left listening to you and just gone on this formulaic evangelistic thing. And I'm back in my heart right now. And you repented before the Lord right there in your heart? Right at sitting in the chair in front of the cleric. And I'm coming back to listening to you in my heart right there. Right. So, I said to him, what do you want me to know? What do you want me to do? It was like, and he was like, welcome back, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Welcome back from the religion of Christianity into abiding mm, in Christ. Wow. So then the lead cleric, he goes, does anyone want to speak on his behalf? That was the question he asked. Well, there's almost nobody else in the room. And then the door opens behind me. And this person comes walking in and he walks past me to the front of the hearing room. And it's a national, I know, because he's wearing the uniform of a university professor. He comes walking in and he says, in Eng the whole proceedings in the local language, but in, he says in English, I would like to say something briefly and then I'll let continue. So I know he's a Muslim because he was allowed to speak. It's, he switched to English to show his education level. So he's showing his authority, his power. And he said, you all know who I am. And they all did. So he was well-known. Mm. Whoever this person was, was a well-known Muslim university official. But he wasn't from this island because I would have known who he was and he wasn't. Mm. So I don't know who he is. And he says, I would just would like to say something brief and then I'll let the proceeding go on. And he tells this story. <laughs> he launches into this story about being a PhD student at Arizona State University. And he says to the court, he said, I was a student. I got sent there on a scholarship from our country with my wife, and we went there, and he's a professor of pure linguistics, doing a linguistic PhD, and he said, it's an honor from our country to be sent. But he said, but if you fail, you all know what happens. If you fail, you return to this country, and you will never work again. Mm. And he said, when I got there, I realized very quickly that I was not going to pass the PhD program. It was too hard, and the English was too difficult. So here's a high-ranking Muslim who's admitting failure. You don't do this in this culture. Sure. He's way too truth-telling. So something is different about him. And then he says, so me and my wife sat on the bed in our little student housing apartment and wept. He said, then there was a knock at the door. I opened the door and these two other grad students, Americans are at the door. They said, we're in the same program as you. This is a really difficult program even for us, but we are here to help you get through it. And our wives will help your wife adjust, and we are committed to serving you as you get through this program. <laughs> and 
And they do. And, and the Muslim guy tells the court, these two men were never too tired, never too busy to help me and sacrifice on my behalf. And as a result of that, I finished higher in the program than both of them. They lifted me above themselves in the program. He said, now, here's the thing about these two guys. After I knew them for a certain amount of time, they invited me to a meeting on a Wednesday night. And I went to the meeting with them. And the meeting was a Bible study. And I went to that Bible study with those guys every Wednesday night for three years. He said, I want to know, does anyone in this courtroom think I'm not a good Muslim because I went to a Bible study for three years with these friends? Does anyone <laughs> think I'm a bad Muslim for doing that? No, everyone says, no, no, you're a great Muslim. You're a good Muslim. He said, now, really, honestly, those Christians, I could be perceived as their enemy in their mind. A Muslim is the enemy of Christians. He said, I heard this in America all the time when I was there. Muslims are the enemies of Christians. He said, so let's say I'm their enemy. They came and laid down their lives for their enemy then. Mm. He said, they sacrificed everything for their enemy. And they did it because Jesus asked them to. That's what he said. <laughs> Jesus asked them to do it. So they did it. He said, and that's amazing. He said, now we know that Islam is greater than that. We know it's greater than Christianity. He said, so we now have a Christian among us who's come here because he thinks God sent him here to serve us. And he's made some mistakes. He said, but, but when they served me while I was in their country and we're the greater faith, what are we going to do now that we have a Christian with us? Put him in prison? He goes, I think that's wrong. And, and that's all I have to say about it. And he turned around and walked out. And as soon as he was gone, the head cleric said, I think we need to drop these charges right now. And they did. They dropped them. Unreal. And the dean that charged me was actually terminated. They said, you're free to go. Mm. Your position in the university is secure. We, you know, you're a good professor. We like what you're doing with the students, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they let me go. And so I go outside and the guy's standing out there, leaning against the tree, smoking a cigarette. And I said, who are you? Yeah. <laughs> and he said, do you see that empty seat up in the front of the room? And I said, yeah, where the head of the Islamic Association sits. He said, yeah, that guy was killed in a car accident yesterday. I'm the new one for the country. Whoa. I'm the new Islamic scholars leader for the country. Today is my first day. And he said, I saw this incident in a report in the office. And I flew here. He flew across the country as far as L.A. to New York. He flew to walk in. And he said, I wanted to pay back those two guys at Arizona State University for what they did for me. And he said, listen, he goes, let me tell you something, though. He said, I'm not doing this for you, because when you open your mouth and talk to these students, you are insulting them and you're hurting their feelings. And he said, and I know what you're trying to say. You better find another way to say it. That is the words of the Lord right to me. Yeah. <laughs> it's like your job is not to go around the world and insult people and, and try and use shame and guilt to get people to convert from one religious system to another. You love those people and you, you self-empty for them and you sacrifice for them and you love them unconditionally. That's what Jesus does for people. Mm. I've never forgotten that lesson. And the Lord just let me walk through all of that to wake me up. And I've never forgotten that lesson. Whenever I'm talking to a person, it's like my goal here to prove that I'm right and they're wrong. Is that my goal? Or is my goal to be other-focused, self-emptying, unconditional love to this person? 
because that's what transforms people. That's what that nurse did to me. So yeah, and that was at the very beginning of our 27 years in the Muslim world. That was at the, the Lord's like, let's get this lesson out of the way. <laughs> um, yeah. Because we went on to do much riskier, way more dangerous things. You, you, you know, I was taken out to be sh- executed one night. Our team in Baghdad was killed. The intensity of it got much greater, but the Lord was like, this thing is built on love. That's what it's built on. Mm. It's not built on power and control. It's built on love. And when you lose that, it's going to blow up in your face. So, yeah, that was my takeaway. And that the Lord does not, you don't need 10,000 Christians supporting you in a bad situation for the Lord to be totally in charge of it. I can be on a remote island that nobody knows and the U.S. government says, good luck, we're not helping you. That doesn't matter to God one bit. None of that matters. He's right there. Mm. He's always with us. So, yeah, those super valuable lessons at the beginning of that career, understanding those lessons. Jamie, I um, would love to invite you back on another episode to dive into some more of those stories. It's so powerful. Thank you so much for what you've shared. Before we turned on the record button today, I asked you to pray with me over our conversation. And I'd love for you to finish up here by praying for our listeners, if you would, please. Yes. Yeah, I would love to. We just remember the words of of Paul in Romans. What can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus? Nothing, nothing, not death, not life, no created thing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, we thank you. We thank you that no matter where we are in the world, that you're not stronger in some places than others. You're not more present in some places than others. You created this. You are omniscient. You are omnipotent. And you are all loving. And you are always with us. And nothing can separate us from that love you have for us in Christ. So, Lord, would you just walk us into the truth of that experientially? We kind of know it in our heads. We say the verse, but we don't live it. It's like what's the what's the experiential life look like where we know that even death can't separate us from your love mm. how alive and free would that life look like and what would we look like if we really believed that what would we be doing if we didn't make decisions based on how much money we have and what people think about us and what our job is and comparing ourselves to famous christians and all what if it was just alive and free in the identity that you gave me unafraid this is the life that you're inviting us into. And so, Lord, would you, would you, I just encourage everyone that's listening to like take you at your word, Lord, and just step out slow. Just what am I afraid of today? And just let you walk them through it. Follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. Follow me and I will make you to become whatever it is that God has created you to be. Just walk in, abide in it and walk into that life of love and joy and peace, and patience, and goodness, and kindness, and gentleness, and faithfulness, and self-control. Lord, we need this so much in our country. So badly we need people that can do this. So, uh, yeah, lead us on, Lord. We follow you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I know you do a lot of work now with identity. What's the best way for people to find out more about your work, Jamie? Yeah, check out our website at identityexchange.com. We have some great resources there. And we this is not a complicated thing. It's actually quite simple. It's profound, but it's very simple. And so there's some simple tools to help you, you know, discover and understand who are you? Who is God? How do we abide in Christ? Just simple. Hmm. Our thing is if it doesn't work on Monday morning, what's the point? Right. 
of it. So yeah, um, yeah so identityexchange.com is where you can Fantastic. see those. Jamie, thanks so yep. much. I was pretty Thank overwhelmed multiple times <laughs> during the conversation. Thanks for sharing your heart. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. Please make sure you subscribe to the show and share this with someone you believe would be encouraged and motivated by these stories. Until next time, I'm Brian Robinson reminding you that the greatest decision you could ever make is to ask Jesus Christ to become the Lord of your life. If you haven't done that, read Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 11. Thanks again for listening.